Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Meet the toy New York Magazine calls Radio Lab for Kids. The Tony Box is a screen-free digital listening experience for little listeners ages three and up. It comes to life prepared with Tony's Collectible figurines with stories and songs to share, ranging from classic tales to Disney favorites. The Tony Box was invented by dads who, like many parents, were concerned about the amount of time their kids were spending on screens. In addition to an ever-growing selection of content to choose from, controls designed for little listeners allow kids to easily adjust volume, rewind, fast-forward, and swap stories all on their own. So it's really nice when you need a little space but don't want to depend on a screen. Changing stories is as simple as changing the Tony on the top of the Tony box. And the Tony is magnetically attached to the Tony box, so it's even easy for the littlest of listeners. With no screens, cameras, or Wi-Fi, parents can rest easy knowing the Tony box is a safe and secure toy for children. Also, it does have a headphone jack for those moments when you just need some quiet time. Because there are no screens, the Tony box does not emit blue light associated with sleep disturbances and circadian rhythm disruptions. It's available in seven sustainable fabrics. It's soft and durable. The Tony box is just a portable helper, ready to take story time wherever your family roams. Learn more at tonies.com. You get 20% off if you type the code HUMANS20 at www.tonies.com. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today we are talking about how to raise an adult with Julie Lithcott-Haynes. Julie is a New York Times bestselling author of, in fact, the book, How to Raise an Adult, She has a TED Talk that has more than 5 million views. Her second book is the critically acclaimed award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. And most recently, her book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is an awesome book aiming to help humans lead a more authentic adulthood. Julie is a former corporate lawyer, a Stanford dean, and she holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. And I want you to listen closely because we think so much about achievement and resilience and how to come to terms with both of those those things, do our best as parents, and also raise an adult. And that is so hard to do when we're so involved and finding that balance is just what we're talking about today. When you look at your just your resume, 
Yeah. And I've had this conversation with my kids who were the first people to point this out to me. As I talk about not focusing on outcomes and success and grades and all of those things, they're like, interesting, we believe you. And yet you have these degrees from these Ivy Leagues and all of these accomplishments that seem like, I mean, you have your undergraduate degree, your double graduate degrees, all of these achievements as we're trying to not helicopter parents or guide parents to not be so focused on those outcomes. And what I think you strike a balance about is inspiring kids to still do their their best, but it's not about what we're talking about. Yeah, Frank Bruni's book. So just because you went to some Ivy League place and I went to some Ivy League place doesn't mean all successful people went to some Ivy League place. For sure. We happen to, and, and we've been successful. But Frank Bruni's book makes just it plain with all this evidence that the people we admire who are the senior leaders in our country in various you know, sectors, mostly did not go to elite places. So that's the proof, you know. And and then how do you like, but that's hard, right? Because you're saying, you're still saying that, but then individually you, how do you reconcile that with your kids? Like, you're like, this was my path, but this is not the only path. And it, and, and also times change. And also that was just a particular path but that's not my value for you. That may, may be your path, may not be your path, and it has nothing to do with success. How do you reconcile that? I think I say a couple of things. Number one, I say, I went to Harvard Law School, but I was miserable and I probably would have been a whole lot happier at NYU, um, which is another elite place, but in the rankings of law schools, it is not near Harvard. You know, mm-hmm. I went to Harvard because Harvard is Harvard. And how do you turn down Harvard? Well, Harvard is a brand. Harvard is a concept. Every individual has to ask, will I thrive there? Can I be whom I'm seeking to be by attending that school? For me, the answer was no. I should have gone to NYU, Tisch School of Law, where the community was so nourishing around social justice and public interest. Instead, I was one of the public interest few at Harvard feeling already marginalized as a woman of color. Then I'm choosing to like not make money with my degree. I came out of that so insecure. I went corporate because I felt so judged. I might be a public interest lawyer to this day had I chosen the right law school. Now, I've still found a way to serve and be of use to fellow humans, but my original plan was through law. So I chose brand over the right fit. That's just mistake number one. What the I, second thing I would say, let me just say the second thing is, please. it used to be that so few people were going to college and we had the sense that these are the best colleges. There are tremendous faculty at at least 200 to 250 colleges. And it's the quality of the faculty is what makes an institution fantastic Mm -hmm. and whether they're willing and able to mentor undergraduates. So I now know, because I am in this field, the best undergraduate educations are where there are faculty who are terrific at their subject and teach and mentor with intention. That is, according to a huge Gallup poll of tens of thousands of humans, Being mentored in college is what leads to a person being successful, not going to a brand name college. Mm -hmm. So 
I was here with my kids in Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, hotbed of much of this mindset, saying to my kids, you know what, that big elite public that I work at, that I met your dad at, you know, it's a great place, but it's not the only great place. And some of the really great places are the small places where faculty have the time and inclination to teach and mentor you as a lowly undergraduate. I actually went to a college, not a university. And part of the reason that I did that was for that very reason. I would, I, somebody told me I would get ignored potentially as an undergraduate. Yeah. Which one? Um, I went, well, when I say which one, there's a whole other, it's loaded that oh. it, I went to Dartmouth. <laughs> and Dartmouth, I also went because I was like, nobody there is going to think the way I do because I come from this New York City kind of, my, it's it's just a very conservative school. And mm. I thought it would be really, and not artsy. And I was like artsy and liberal. And I was like, I'll go here and be different mm. instead of go to another school where I'll be the same. And it was a very, really weird choice to make. And I don't think I would have made that mm -hmm. again, right. even though I, I had a wonderful experience. But I was I was making just a strange choice about wanting to understand a different type of world. And I also think I read a, a F. Scott Fitzgerald novel and liked a scene at Dartmouth and it was really yeah. superficial. Um, yeah. But I was also looking for a school that was not focused on their graduate students. But I definitely have a kid who's starting to ask me about college and I'm like, first of all, you're, you're in eighth grade. So <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing. And second of all, I keep discouraging her nothing against Dartmouth but that just doesn't feel like that was like a great place for girls in particular and you know a number of other issues but I think it's growing and changing um, it's definitely growing and changing and you went there and she respects and admires you and that either means she'll be pulled toward it or repelled by it because it's yours <laughs> who knows yeah, right yeah um, I was trying to get my daughter to apply to Oberlin um, because my uncle when, went there. Uh, my brother was went there and was a trustee for some while, and I just know it to be one of those liberal arts colleges that is so steeped in social justice and even has ties to the Underground Railroad. And you know, they're just all kinds of interesting young humans. They're mm -hmm. very steeped in the arts. They have this conservatory. And my daughter's an artist. And so I just kept saying Oberlin, Oberlin, Oberlin. And finally she was like, mom, stop. I, I had this look on my face like, Avery, I just want to tell you. About, she was like, are you going to tell me about Oberlin again? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? I thought I had mentioned it once or twice. She's like, it's all you ever talk about. And she basically put up the hand and said like, I am not going to look at that school. I am not interested in that school. And I most definitely will not be applying to that school because you seem to want me to so bad. I mean, it was that transparent almost. Mm -hmm. So then in my talks, I would say to people, as I'm extolling the values of small liberal arts colleges, I would say, and oh, by the way, if anyone went in the audience went to Oberlin, would you mind just giving my daughter a call and telling her about it? Because she won't <laughs> listen to me. So long story short, yeah, she's now a rising junior in college, not at Oberlin. And she's like, you know what? Oberlin might've been the perfect place for me. And I was like, ah! Oh God, but that's you know, such she's a like, great... but I couldn't see it because you were just so, you know, and I have learned and repeatedly need to learn. I got to back my energy off to make room for my kids to come forward. Oh, I love that sentence. I love that sentence. In fact, I love it so much. Can you say it just one more time? I realized I had to back my energy off to make room for my kid to come forward. 
that is the the sentence for adolescence for adolescent parenting yeah. right there thank you so i i started off on a we- with a weird question although that was such a phenomenal answer because i want to go back to to something that you already said that um one of the ways to reconcile wanting your kids to thrive with also not wanting to push in the wrong ways and to back off to give them space. When you were talking about choosing possibly a brand for law school instead of where where it would have been more right fit for you, that was such a good solution for helping parents think about how to support kids in adolescence as they're trying to navigate things like getting like finding that spot that is about who they are and where they're going to do well instead of finding a spot that is just a general I guess this means in society you've done well so I want to elaborate on that a little bit and go into how to raise an adult What are some of the ways to help kids understand who they are versus trying to be someone they think the world expects of them? Yeah. And it really speaks to my new book, Your Turn, More Than How to Raise an Adult, because Your Turn is a narrative voice to the young adults where I articulate how we go about discerning our voice, meaning our spirit, our soul, our wants, our gut, whatever you think is the locus of our own intentions. Like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to help young people discern their wants from the noise of other people's judgment and expectations. And so you framed it as who they are versus what the world expects. And my answer to that is you get better and better at listening to your inner voice. Well, how do I, how do I even make it speak to me. You ask yourself questions like, what school would I go to if no one was judging me? Or, okay, but what would I major in if it was only up to me? Okay, well, what if I could make a living doing anything? What would it be? You know, that's when the person asking themselves with curiosity that question, that's when the answer comes back. Well, oh yeah, I'd be a a wilderness leader. I'd take people whitewater rafting down the Colorado. Oh, well, that's not practical. Why isn't it? People do it. Why shouldn't I? You know, well, I'm from a family of lawyers, but you're an artist or I'm from a family of artists and I'm not an artist. I want to be an investment banker. You know, go do the thing that you're good at and you love. I've learned the hard way. I was good at corporate law and I was being mentored and given opportunities for greater responsibility and growth. And I was being well-paid and it was sucking the living life out of me one billable hour at a time because I am here on the planet to try to help humans on their path, not to help one corporation battle another over an intellectual property matter. Some people want to do that work. I didn't. I'm not knocking the work. I'm saying wrong fit for me. And I learned that all the money in the world won't make up for a lack of connection with your values and your sense of why you are living this life. So those are the kinds of terms that I use when I'm trying to inspire young people to break free of that expectation of others. Like you are not a dog on a leash being led down the path of life by someone else, or you're not supposed to be. And if you are, it's time to start to go off leash. 
because this is your one life. You are not somebody's pet. You are not somebody's project. You are a person. How do we get that across in your mind? Because a lot of the listeners here are, you know, can, well, two things can happen. One, ask yourself that because this question, I think we all can ask ourselves forever. And also as we're raising our kids, finding the balance between, yes, you want your kids to listen when it's really important. You need compliance when it comes to safety. But otherwise, I think this conversation about, you know, how to be an adult starts with recognizing when we're raising our kids that it's not about obedience and compliance much of the time and how to help them understand that while still having boundaries when it's really, really important. Yeah. I mean, yes, I I agree with you. Boundaries are essential. Kids need rules. They need boundaries. They need expectations. They shouldn't be so restrictive that a kid feels constantly watched or judged. But those rules should not be around what they will do for a living. None of us, it is arrogant as heck for any single person to say you should be a whatever. No, no, stop it. If you want another doctor in the family, you know, go get another MD for yourself. You know, it's not your life. I mean, just with all due respect, we have to stop treating our children as if they are ours to manufacture into Mm. some vision of a human we could be proud of. Like we're the gardeners clipping and pruning a bonsai tree. Mm-hmm. They are not bonsai trees. As I say in my TED talk, they are wildflowers. They need the basics like a wildflower needs. Good dirt, moisture, sunlight, walk away. I mean, the, the parenting equivalent of that is healthy boundaries and rules, food, shelter, and love and trust. And that's about it. And I have an example for you of how we can visualize the appropriate way to be. I got a call, Elisa, from a mom who said, Julie, I finally get it. I finally get what you've been teaching and how to raise an adult. I have two sons, she says. One is my biological son. He's 17. My adopted son is a couple years younger. My older son, my bio kid, she calls him, her biological son, is in therapeutic boarding school. Things have kind of gone a bit off the rails, so he doesn't live with us. We have family therapy a couple of days a week. And what I learned in therapy this week from my son was the following. He said, mom, every time you say, don't forget this, have you done this? When are you going to do this? Have you done this yet? It makes me feel that you think I can't or won't or never will be able. She said, Julie, I get it. I'm that way with my biological son, but I'm not that way with my adopted son. And I think the reason is, I feel that I will be judged for what my biological kid achieves in life because his genetic material is half mine. But with my adopted son, I just love him like crazy and support him and being who he wants to be because I know that in her own mind, it was I won't be judged for who he becomes because his genes aren't mine. That is how she made sense of the difference. She realized she has a healthier, more loving more supportive relationship with her second kid, who, by the way, is emotionally well-regulated and well, no coincidence there. Whereas the son, she's been squeezing like a balloon, you know, and is now acted out and is in this other, you know, not able to live at home. 
is trying to show up in his own life somehow. She has got such a straitjacket around him of constant nagging, constant reminder, constant handling, constant monitoring that he's acted out. And any psychologist would say, well, duh, that kid's trying to have agency over something. You know, mm-hmm. if you're not going to let him manage his own deadlines and his own expectations and obligations, he's going to act out. You know, he's going to say, you know, I'm going to show you what I can be in charge of. I'm going to go be in charge of getting in trouble. I thought mm-hmm. it was brilliant. And I share that this is- with audiences because, you know, the bio kid, adopted kid, that that made sense to that mother for, in a more general sense, I think it's, think about the loving, healthy relationship you have with your niece, your nephew. Some people use the term nibbling to be gender uh, neutral. Niece, nephew, nibbling, or the child wait, of your wait. best. Niece, nephew, nibbling. I've yeah. never heard that. That's so cute. Nibbling is a gender neutral term for the children of your uh, sisters and brothers, of your siblings. Nibbling. Oh my God. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. And so imagine your relationship with them. You go over to their house. You're there for the weekend. This is outside of per- pandemics rules. And that kid comes home or, or say it's your best friend's kid. You know, a kid you care about, love, you love their parents, but you're not their parent. That kid comes home from school, throws the backpack to the ground, says in a huff, well, I guess I just failed chemistry and marches off. What is your impulse? Compassion. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, the kid marches off and then comes back into the room and gets a glass of water. And you say, I'm so sorry. That doesn't sound very good. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? Let me know if I can help. You know, either I know a thing or two about chemistry. I'm always here if you need me, or I don't know a damn thing about chemistry, Mm -hmm. but you know what? I love you. And if you, if there's ever a way I can help, let me know. Okay. That's the loving response. It's their chemistry. Whereas a parent today in communities like yours and mine are more likely to say, what, what happened? I thought we studied for that. What do you mean we're failing chemistry? I'm going to call the teacher. Like you're acting like it's your chemistry. It's not. Right. Your right. kid has to retain ownership of the matters in their own lives. And when we overparent, we're, we're basically sending the message. I care more about your work, your schoolwork, your outcomes, your grades, your scores, your achievements than you do. I need to ensure you have these outcomes. And we've no wonder so many kids are checked out because we're we're making them passive participants in their own life as if they are forever in the freaking child seat in the back of the car instead of one day being in the passenger seat learning from us and then one day taking the test and being able to drive on their own without us we have forgotten that that is the whole point to get the kid in the driver's seat of their own life the skin is your largest organ So it's very important to take care of it. I'm using Osea to give my skin the attention that it deserves. And it has clean and effective ingredients. At the start of summer, it's a fantastic time to love your skin and give yourself some just relaxing time. So the Osea Algae Body Oil is a perfect part of my routine. It just is so luxurious and rich and it's not greasy and sticky and it just feels like, yeah, I'm taking care of myself. Thank you very much. And Osea Algae Body Oil instantly moisturizes and replenishes dry skin and just leaves your skin feeling silky smooth and glowing. This 
body oil is made with andaria algae, acai pulp, babasu seed oil, and Osea soaks responsibly sourced andaria algae in barrels of oils for up to six months. And the result is liquid gold, just a rich, luxurious, never greasy body oil, fragrant with just a light sunny citrus and top notes of sweet passion fruit. Osea creates skin and body care products powered by the sea, and they've made clean, safe skincare products since 1996. They are vegan, cruelty-free, responsibly sourced, plant-derived ingredients, so they're good for you and for the planet. And it's a female-founded and family-operated company, which I love. So you can try Osea risk-free for 30 days and get free shipping on orders over $50, and they send free samples with every order. And you can get 10% off your first order with my promo code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S, at oseamalibu.com. That's 10% off with code HUMANS at oseamalibu, O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise, filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should never really eat. So that's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved superpowered chewable vitamin created by dads tired of children's vitamins that cause more problems than they solve. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door in a package families love so parents can have one less thing to worry about. Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they love. Haya is made from a blend of 12 farm-fresh fruits and vegetables and supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals known to help support a healthy immune system, energy, brain function, mood, teeth, bones, and more. While most children's vitamins are filled with five grams of sugar and can cause a variety of health issues, Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, and it tastes great, so it's perfect for picky little eaters. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, everything else you can imagine. And it's manufactured in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. So Raising Good Humans listeners receive 50% off your first order. So to claim this deal, you go to Haya health.com slash humans or enter the code humans at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash humans and get your kids the full body nourishment they need. Full discount applied at checkout. Ancient nutrition has one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. And that drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients. Every product is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations, and they combine it with today's modern research. They believe proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients your body can truly use. So they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. It's why they do everything they can to create products that your body can easily digest and absorb with formulas that have real impact. Every one of the products has a purpose 
The fan favorite and my favorite is the multi-collagen protein. So if you're looking for a great place to start, this is it. Multi-collagen protein can help revitalize your joints, skin, and hair. It's made with clinically studied ingredients. It includes five types of collagen, and it's easy to stir into your morning coffee, and it has no flavor and dissolves right away. Go to ancientnutrition.com and use humans for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase. If you're looking to revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, do it with clinically studied ingredients. Use the code HUMANS for 20% off at store.draxe.com. You have a four-step strategy for teaching life skills to take this pattern of just having kids in the backseat, to use um, your analogy, like in the backseat of the car, always, you know, never driving. How can parents go from doing it for their kids to moving on? And whether you have a two-year-old or a 22-year-old, this still is a four-step strategy. Right. So I think in medicine, they call it watch one, do one, teach one. It's a three-step method. And that makes sense because, you know, physicians are a step ahead of the rest of us, right? So they've, (laughs) they've got three steps. I've got four. But the principle is the same. You have to be taught and you have to be allowed to try before you can actually do it independently. This applies to teaching kids to be able to make meals at home, to remember to pack their own belongings and take them to school to cross the street. It, this four-step method applies to every single skill our kid needs to leave our home having had exposure to. And let's reframe parenting that way. We're not supposed to foster dependency on us so that we have an utterly dependent 20-year-old or 30-year-old. We're supposed to use childhood as this long set of years in which we continually teach so that our kids can one day have kids of their own so that they can look after us one day. So the four <laughs> steps are, and let's keep the car visual. First, you do it for them. Then you do it with them. Then you watch them do it. And finally, they can do it themselves. First, you do it for them. You're driving the car. They're facing backwards in the infant car seat. Mm-hmm. They don't have to think about where are we going. Okay, really fast forwarding now to then you do it with them. Uh, your kid is maybe in the back seat in a child seat. Maybe they're now old enough to be in the passenger seat. And you're saying, hey, one day you're going to learn to drive this thing. And, you know, here's how I hold the wheel. And here's how I use the gears. If you like me and you drive a manual, here's when I signal. Here's how I use my mirror. You're teaching. You're still driving the two of you to wherever, but your kid is now being invited to listen and learn and take interest. You do step two a lot. Then you get to step three, which is truly terrifying. You switch Roles. Okay. Your kid is now in the driver's seat, but you're still there, sitting there for the just in case moment. Okay. And you do step three enough that the kid can finally get to step four, which they walk to on their own. I do it myself. You don't have to be in the car. Right. That's the process for everything. And too many of us are stuck at steps one and two. Mm. We're doing it completely for them. Why? Because we can. Of course you can. You're a grown up, right? Because we have time. We have extra time. Go get a hobby. Stop making your kid your hobby, right? Because we can do it better. Of course you can. You've had all these years of practice. You're supposed to delight in your child learning. 
to tie their shoes, to cut their food, to make a meal, to unscrew the top off a juice drink. They say young kids today can't unscrew like a Gatorade because the adults have always cracked the cap. Why? To be loving. Why? Because I can. Why? Because what's my role in life if not to serve you constantly? Well, you've deprived your kid of developing the manual dexterity and the strength to literally unscrew a plastic cap off a drink. We undermine them. And then they feel ridiculous. And they look ridiculous at some point out in the world because they've become chronologically adult and cannot do a gall darn thing for themselves. And we have done that to them. Prioritizing academic enrichment at the expense of skill development, which develops confidence, competence, a sense of Mm -hmm. I can. We fixed and managed everything to smooth the path so they never have a boo-boo or a hurt feeling. And then they get out in the world and the world slams them and they are just bewildered because they have no muscle memory for recuperating, recovering, developing resilience from the slings and arrows of life. They're like veal out in the world when they should be strong and lithe and capable and confident and hopeful. Instead, they're like veal afraid and subject to being slaughtered by the world. How do you define adult? I define adult for adulting Adulting. as the stage of life between childhood and death. Okay. If you survive childhood, you're adulting. These two bookends are times typically when we're largely in the care of others You begin inside someone's body being carried for nine months. You're then held on their shoulder. You're then held on their hip. You're then held by the hand. Then you're not held by the hand, but let go, right? That's childhood. And then at the end of the life, your life, unless it comes suddenly, typically you're in the care of people who are more hale and hearty than you once again. So adulthood is the sweet set of decades, hopefully, of health and wellness and intentionality. And I know who I am and what I want, and I'm going to go be that person. Okay, put more simply, childhood is someone else is largely responsible for you. Adulthood is you are more or less in charge of yourself. Okay, yes, there is some burgeoning independence in childhood. That's the point. That's how you get to adulthood. And adulthood is not you're totally alone. You do have other humans who you love and you're in relationship with in the workplace with, but that's interdependent. You can be in charge and must be in charge of yourself. We all must take responsibility and accountability for our own actions. And that's what it means to be an adult, which feels terrifying. And it is when you're starting, but then it's amazing. It's amazing. And so when we're thinking about raising adults, we we need to give them certain skills. You talk about the skills that we need to have by the time you're, so what have you seen? Like Kids go off to college. You're a dean, not right now, but you, right? right? Like, right. Th- looking back, what are some things where you're like, why don't you know this? Why were you, bu- you were so busy focused on academics or like you, you were so busy focused on whatever it was that your parents thought you needed to do that you were robbed of the opportunity to be ready for this really scary thing, but also wonderful thing called adulting. So it's good for me as the author of these books to have them both in my hands because I've grown a lot in the seven years since I wrote How to Raise an Adult. I just had someone call me out on Twitter because my checklist 
for what an 18 year old needs to be capable of uh-huh. in how to raise an adult. I wrote this checklist isn't very respectful of a lot of challenges people have. Like say, if you're on the autism spectrum disorder, if you're on the, if you're on the autism spectrum, if you have ASD, um, whereas my new book, your turn is deeply aims to be deeply inclusive of what I call all situations, diagnoses, complications, learning differences, mental health challenges, mm. uh, et cetera. And so, and I have a checklist in that book on, in the chapter on fending for yourself. So what I was saying to parents, and I'll just try to warm it up a little bit in terms of the critique that has come my way, given that this was written seven years ago, an 18 year old must be able to talk to strangers. By that, I mean, don't spend their childhood doing all the talking for them to teachers, to store clerks, to coaches. You've got to teach your kid how to have those conversations. You have to treat others with respect, but also know how to push your own needs forward, how to advocate for yourself. You have to be able to find your way around your new campus, your new town. If you're working instead of going to school, they have to be able to make their way around and and take transportation or get their body there somehow. And if you've shuttled them everywhere all their life and never set up the expectation that they would do it themselves, then they are lost and bewildered when they're out there. They have to be able to manage their assignments, workload, and deadlines. Not you manage it. Management doesn't mean my parent will always manage it. No, you've got to get there. Contribute to the running of a household. That's that's chores and responsibility. Handle your interpersonal problems. That means work it out with your roommate. Work it out with your colleague. Not you know, you don't know how to do that if your parents have always micromanaged your play dates or problems you've had with other kids at school. You have to be able to cope with the ups and downs of life. And we don't serve our kids in developing that ability, which is emotional resilience, if we've always smoothed the path. You have to be able to earn and manage money. You have to be able to take risks. And if they've led a childhood in a padded cell of safety, when have they ever gotten to experiment with some small risk-taking, which builds the instincts and the good judgment around what risks are worth taking and what are unsafe? So that's my list for parents to keep in mind. This childhood is in furtherance of, of them being able to do all of that, not text you so you can handle all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay? Speaking of texting, in the last seven years, a lot has <laughs> speaking of... So much has changed. And now phones are, you know, kids are getting phones earlier. Basically, parents drop everything because they're like, oh, my child called or my child is texting. And I wonder if you have anything to say about the availability yeah. of the parent now. So a couple thoughts. First is we shouldn't be treating life and childhood as if it's a constant state of emergency. We act like we're on ready alert to drop everything, to go rescue someone in danger. And we have to just pull back from that mentality and appreciate that most of life is not a red flashing light of danger. If we can regulate ourselves, take some deep breaths on a regular basis and say, you know what, stuff is going to happen and they're going to be fine. Okay, that's the main, in the main, that's what we need to be feeling. Okay, number two, we want to not be our kids' only solution, right? They should alert us if they're in danger, if there's some trouble, but short of those things, they ought to be figuring out within themselves, how can I handle this? Who can I talk to right here instead of my parent who's across town and only available by phone? Okay, so we want to be saying to our kids, okay, 
text me if there's an emergency. If it's not an emergency, see if you can figure it out yourself. If you receive a text that isn't an emergency, what you can start to do is just put a pause in. Instead of drop everything and handle it, you might check the phone. Just I got an alert from my kid. Oh, my kids left their backpack at school. Oh, my kid didn't realize there was an assignment. That's not an emergency. Those are not emergencies. So I would pause and not reply to start to teach the kid that I am not at your beck and call, okay? And, or that I did not think that thing was an emergency. After some time has passed, you can say, sorry, honey, I was in a meeting. That sounds frustrating. How did you handle it? Whew, that's telling the kid, I think you can handle it. What? Yes, we have to send that message so often. Or, are you okay? That sounds frustrating. I'm so sorry that happened. How do you think you're going to handle it? Tells them it is a problem. It's not my problem. It's yours to handle. And I think you can. And that's the message that's been missing. So let's stop being at their beck and call. Look, it makes us feel needed. It makes us feel useful. Dads in particular get so much love for like, oh, he dropped everything when his son texted from the soccer field saying his shoelace broke. Like, okay, stop. It's so true. It does happen more with dads. Well, they get praise for every little thing. Yeah, Yeah. right. Whereas we're doing everything and they're like, where is she? She's always with her kids, you know? (laughs) So the Uber point is, let us not let the phone be an extension of the umbilical cord. Researchers called the smartphone, this is not my term, I borrowed this from researchers from a decade ago, saying this thing is like the world's longest umbilical cord, Mm. Okay. No, they're supposed to not have an umbilical cord. It's there. They can chat with their friends. Maybe they are some school apps on there. They've got it for emergencies if they need to contact us. But childhood used to be lived with children solving problems and children figuring things out. And yes, children talking to adults and asking for help or asking for clarification, right? Let's stop infantilizing our children. Let me just get in the mind of a parent listening who's feeling like, you know, kids have such a short childhood and they're not supposed to be adults. That's not what you're talking about. Not at all. What you're talking about, actually, what I'd love for you to speak to, it's not just about like shifting our mindset about raising kids this way, but it's actually critical for their mental health as adults. So I, I think it's not, it's important. I'd love for you to speak to, what you're seeing when it comes to adolescents emerging out into the world, just sort of becoming, coming into adulthood and what not having that competency or that sense of self-efficacy can do to your experience getting, you know, being out there. So the metaphors that I've used on this conversation and elsewhere in a broader sense are we're treating our kids like dogs in a dog, like we're going for best in breed at the Westminster dog show. So we're doing everything. We're setting the plans and the expectations and they just follow our lead. They're like robots programmed by us to execute our instructions. They're like puppets on a string. They're like bonsai trees clipped and pruned. They're like greyhound dogs in a greyhound dog race, just brittle and tired and running this race called childhood to please us because we're betting on them because we want return on investment. Sometimes they, it's like we treat them like they're stocks in the stock market. I have made an investment in this thing. And if it doesn't perform, I'm going to sell it. Okay. All of this leads to our overparenting. And 
We don't let kids do things for themselves. We don't let them solve their own problems, think through how to solve a problem, which is how they develop critical thinking. We just handle it. We fix it. We manage it. We plan it. It all seems helpful. But what we've done is we've handed a kid a fish instead of having taught the kid to fish. And then they emerge from our homes and they can't do a damn thing and it harms them. There are studies that emerge in the last decade out of the field of psychology correlating an over-involved parenting style, which you might think of as the micromanagement of children. Just like we don't want to be micromanaged in the workplace, we shouldn't be micromanaging our kids. Um, There's studies correlating this over-involved parenting style with higher rates of anxiety and depression in children. And the reason is when we do for them constantly and nag and remind them and act as if we care about it so much, we are interrupting the natural development of self-efficacy, which is that deep abiding sense all humans need within us that I can, I can do things. It's not about I'm amazing. It's I can do this task. So undermining self-efficacy results in anxiety in kids, depression in kids, we get into this loop around executive function, like they don't seem to have the executive function demanded by the current schooling system. So I have to do for them. Well, guess what? The more you do for them, the more you're depriving your kid of going through the process of developing that executive function. Well, I have to, because he won't get the right grade and won't get into, well, then you're going to be his executive function for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have to slow things down, let our kids learn and grow. That is how kids become who we want them to become. It's not about treating them like adults when they're five or seven or 12 or 15. It is knowing if they are to one day be capable adults, I'm supposed to see childhood every afternoon in childhood, every weekend, every evening as an opportunity for them to learn and grow. Madeline Levine, psychologist up here in the Bay, author of many books, has said, we we harm our kids when we do what they can already do or when we do what they can almost do or when we do what's just in our ego's need for us to do, okay? We're supposed to delight in them learning and growing. It's how they develop the skills and it's how they become mentally or remain mentally well. Okay, so how did you go from writing a parenting book to writing a book directly to emerging adults? Aliza, what I will say to you is it was never about parenting. I was a college dean on a campus seeing young adults undermined in their agency and in their resilience by well-meaning parents who were overhelping. I was incensed. I was concerned what's going to happen to these young adults I then discovered I was a helicopter parent with my own kids who were eight and 10 at the time. So I grew very invested in solving the problem. Less capable young adults. Why is that? Oh, over-involved parents throughout childhood. Mm. I saw myself in the problem. I had so much compassion for my students. That's that first book. But I didn't aim to be a parenting expert. I'm here to support humans in thriving. Turns out there's a type of parenting that's impeding thriving. That's the first book. This new book is for young adults, emerging adults, and frankly, all humans. I'm having older adults say, I see myself in this. Mm. Okay, this is me saying, 
I have some thoughts about how we humans can lead our best lives, whether they were overparented or not. Isn't, you know, the presumption is not that every reader was overparented. The presumption is that every reader, particularly the younger readers, have some concerns about this adulting thing, which feels kind of scary and mysterious. And I'm trying to answer um, and explain the, the mysterious things, but I'm also trying to entice with like, but wait, look at how delicious it sounds when humans are in charge of themselves. And that's why the book is filled with stories of humans from all walks of life. Um, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the word and the most specific sense of the word, sharing their stories of struggle, decision-making, perseverance, how they handled stuff. I'm trying to demonstrate to readers, yes, you can. And that's the purpose of the second book. How old can you start reading this book? I think a mature 15-year-old can read it. I do drop some F-bombs. I do talk about sex. Not a lot, but you can't write about adulting and not, you know. Um, I think, um, you know, we, we say 18 to 34, but I think a mature, younger teen um, could handle it. And 40-somethings and 50s and 60s and 70s are saying, I quit my job because of your book. I've committed to a relationship because of your book. It's a mirror. The book, Your Turn, is a mirror. The reader sees themselves in it where they will. And I love that. <laughs> 